We're turning to God's Word this morning as we find it in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And uh, we're reading from uh, verse uh, 9 through to verse 25. <clears throat> I should have prepared myself better, but I don't know what version you'll be reading from. I'm reading this morning from the New International Version, and I hope you'll be able to follow me. This is the Word of God. Acts chapter 8, and we're reading from verse 9. The heading over this paragraph in the NIV is Simon the Sorcerer, and we intend to think about him a little bit later on in the service. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, give him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part nor share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Amen, and we know that God as ever will add his own blessing to this reading from his inspired word. Thank you to the praise group for leading our worship so acceptably uh, this morning. And of course, you're not just quite finished yet, but thank you indeed
As we turn to this passage that we read earlier on from Acts chapter 8 today, we are wanting to think particularly about this man commonly known as Simon the Sorcerer. The eighth chapter of the book of Acts begins by showing us how the persecution of the church at Jerusalem was turned to good effect. Those who were driven from their homes or those who decided that it would be better for them to leave went out proclaiming the good news wherever they went from place to place. The scattering of the Christians was to lead uh, to the most significant uh, forward outreach in the mission of the church in those early days. One might say that uh, it required the persecution to make them fulfill that implicit command that that was uh, 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 placed in verse 8 of chapter 1 of the book of Acts. As the believers moved to new areas, they found a ready response to the gospel. And this is exemplified particularly in the way in which the Samaritan people responded to it. The preaching of Philip was accompanied by the kinds of signs which had been seen in the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, and there was a powerful response to the call for baptism. This was all the more remarkable since the people to whom uh, Philip preached had previously been under the spell of a religious quack. The successful mission led to a visit by Peter and John, who discovered that the converts that had been made had not yet received the Holy Spirit and they came and they laid hands upon them that they might do so. We see how Simon the sorcerer sought to gain not just the gift of the Spirit but the gift of bestowing the Spirit on others and he had to be sharply warned against this sinful unrepentant attitude which his request displayed. Without doubt the greatest delusion that any person can have is to think that they are saved when in reality they are not. Simon the sorcerer seen here in Acts chapter 8 filled himself with this delusion and for a while the church seems to have been filled also but God of course was never filled by it. Simon was one of the most prominent men in Samaria. He had obviously exalted he, he had an obviously exalted opinion about himself, for we read uh, that he boasted that he was someone great. The people agreed with him and thought him as some kind of God. They were impressed with his ability to perform mag magic and sorcery. What exactly this was, we uh, don't know, but it was obviously something very impressive. Simon's self-esteem and his public status depended upon his ability. So when Philip came to Samaria uh, preaching the gospel and performing signs and wonders, Simon's standing in the community began to be threatened. And so he began to get a little bit worried about that. He was now not the only one with remarkable powers, and it appeared that Philip's power was much greater than Simon's. So Simon followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw performed. Simon the sorcerer was so impressed, in fact, that he himself professed salvation and was baptized. Probably the Christians 
uh, consider this an exciting happening. What a magnificent convert to see this man come to Christ. What a trophy of grace. Here was one of the most powerful men in the city professing salvation and becoming a Christian. However, it is clear from Acts chapter 8 that Simon's attraction to Christianity uh, was not caused by any conviction of personal sin, but by the professional interest of a magician in the abilities of someone whom he considered uh, to be a rival. So then what is salvation? It's an important question, isn't it? Salvation, let me begin by saying, is not an interest, either vague or serious, in some aspect of gospel or church life. It is not the result of an accident of birth, because no one can be born a Christian. The Bible makes it very clear that we are all born in sin and shapen in iniquity. Sadly, many people call themselves Christians on the strength of these two misconceptions. Some have an attraction to the church building, very often because of the family connections there. For others, it's a love of church music or perhaps a fascination with ceremony and ritual. All these things hold an importance and value for some people. They're not interested in belief and doctrine. In fact, such things bore them, they would say. Christianity for them is an external matter of things that they like. Others think they are Christians simply because they are born into a family which belongs to a particular denomination. They think that they inherit the family religion in the same way that they inherit the family possessions. Salvation is in reality, of course, a matter of personal faith in Jesus Christ, which comes about as the result of a conviction of one's own sin and guilt. It's not a passing interest. It's not something casual. It's not inherited. But it is an all-consuming all commitment to Jesus Christ that forever changes the life of the convert. Of course, there can be no salvation without repentance, and there can be no repentance without conviction of sin. Salvation is from guilt, from the guilt, and the consequences of our sin. It deals with spiritual matters, and its effects are eternal. Simon, we are told, believed, and was baptized. These are both activities that the New Testament commands us to do. But what did Simon believe? Did he believe he was a sinner under the wrath and judgment of a holy God? Did he see that his old life was full of self-centeredness and magic and was all wrong and needed to be repented of? Baptism, you see, cannot take away sin and therefore it cannot save. It's merely an outward sign of an inward work of grace that takes place in the heart. Sadly, it became apparent that Simon knew nothing of grace, for we are told here that his heart was not right before God, and he was still a captive to sin. And there are still many in our churches 
today who, like Simon, have made an outward profession of faith. They've said their questions. Have you ever heard that phrase used of somebody who was supposed to have become a Christian? They've said their questions. Well, if you're a Presbyterian and you had lived in the part of the world that I grew up in, you certainly would have heard uh, that expression. They've said their questions. What was being referred to? Well, as I did, uh, people generally did uh, in those days in that part of the world, that is those who were Presbyterians, they came into Sunday school in their youth They passed through all the different classes. They came to the Bible class and they spent one year, maybe two years there. And then they went to the communicants classes and then they graduated into full church membership and became communicant members. What did that involve when it got to the stage where you were in the communicants classes? Well, for me, it was a question of you were given about I can't remember exactly the number, but maybe six or seven uh, questions from the Shorter Catechism, a wonderful document, and I want to heartily commend it again today. You were given six or seven questions, and good questions they were. What is sin? What is repentance? What is faith in Jesus Christ? But unfortunately, you weren't given much explanation about what these things referred to or what they meant. As long as you were able to say them off by rote, then you had answered your questions. And you were presumably on the road to glory. That was conducted, of course, by the minister, the communicants' classes. When it was over, he would meet with you. And he would ask you, I can only speak personally for myself because... On the day that we were to have this uh, examination, if I may use the word loosely, I was sick and I wasn't able to go. And I had a very uh, traumatic experience thereafter for I had to go on a day on my own then to face this old man in a very dark robe with a white collar on him and in a manse where the crows were clattering about and the trees were all around you and it was... uh, well, it, uh, it wasn't unlike the description that you've heard of the pit, you know. And uh, this man uh, took me in and, uh, of course, he, uh, I think he put me over my questions again. Uh, and I was able to do that. But I must say I was shaking uh, with this man standing over me and me only a boy of maybe 13 or 14 at that time maybe 15 at the, at, the, at the furthest. And when he had said a very brief uh, uh, word about how I had answered my questions, he then came over to me, walks up very close and looks down at me and I'm looking up at this man in this dark room with all that's going on around me and I'm, I'm trembling. And what uh, my recollection of what he said to me was this, and you are a Christian, aren't you? And who was I to dare say no to this man that I was facing? But I knew in my heart that that's what I should have said. And hence, I was on my way to glory, into the membership of the church, and there it was. But I simply say all of that to explain to you uh, that um, this was how it was done in those days 
Well, it's, uh, of course, I have learned since then that uh, uh, the Kirk Session uh, is the body that uh, admits people to membership and to the Lord's table, but I didn't know that. But of course, well, there was a, an attempt to involve the Kirk Session because on the evening of the pre-communion service, uh, we were taken into the minister's room and the Kirk Session were there and the minister said to them, uh, I have... Uh, conducted a series of classes with these young people and I am satisfied that they are ready to move into church membership. And uh, nobody said a word. But one old man who was the clerk of session and, 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 and into his 70s by that time, I remember it clearly, was the only one to speak. And he uh, said he, it was good to see us here and uh, so on and he wished us well. But he said, young people, I just want to say to you, if you don't know Christ as your saviour, uh, you perhaps should not come in to membership at this time. But of course, that was all very brief and all over. And um, we were all uh, ushered on uh, into church membership. So that's what it meant to say your questions. Let me just say, I don't need to say in a place like Bugnal, to be in church membership, you need to do something more than say your questions. Yes, people who make false professions may fool themselves and may, as this man did for a while, fool the church. But we can never fool God. Simon's true spiritual condition was revealed when Peter and John came to Samaria. They prayed for the new converts and laid hands on them, and when they did so, the Samaritan Christians received the Holy Spirit. It's not our business just now to consider why it was necessary for Peter and John to do this, but Simon was greatly excited by what he saw happening, and he wanted the power to add to his own repertoire of magic tricks. So we see him offering money to Peter and John if they would tell him how it was done. Peter's response was devastating. He said in a few sentences, he exposed Simon as the sorcerer who still had no concept of salvation. He said to him, may your money perish with you for you have no part or share in this ministry for your heart is not right before God. Simon for all his profession and his baptism knew nothing of God. He thought of God in the same way as he thought of his own magic abilities. He didn't understand that nothing that God has is for sale. If a man thinks he can buy salvation or perhaps earn it by his own efforts, he's revealing a total ignorance as to the holiness of God and the depths of his or her own sin. Isaiah in the Old Testament tells us that salvation is without money and without price. And writing to the Romans, Paul says that eternal life is the gift of God. That's the only way to receive it, is to receive it from the hand of God as a free gift. This matter of salvation. Simon's problem was that he was still completely absorbed in signs and wonders. He saw them as a means to continue being somebody special and have standing in the community. In fact, he had no desire to change what he was, only to establish his old position more firmly. 
He was not at all concerned about salvation, only stood, uh, only concerned about self-esteem and position and signs and wonders were for him a means to that end. What is true salvation? Peter showed Simon what was spiritually wrong with him and that what he needed to do in order to become a Christian. He needed to get right with God. The first thing that Peter told him was, your heart is not right before God. This was true of Simon. And of course it's true of everyone who has not repented of their sin and trusted in Christ alone for their personal salvation. Perhaps this is what God is maybe saying even to someone here today. I don't know. Your heart is not right before God. It matters not that you've been baptized, whether as an adult or an infant. And it doesn't matter how much water or how little water was used in the ceremony. It matters not whether you're a church member and even an office bearer. It matters not who you are. If Christ hasn't dealt with your sin, then your heart is not right with God. It's all too easy to deceive yourself. The Bible has some devastating things to say about the human heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And then in the New Testament, we are told that out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. It is our sin that makes us unacceptable to God. And nothing else will change this unless we repent. Secondly, Peter told Simon to repent of his wickedness. And repentance, let me say, friends, is not a case of trying your best to put right all the sin that there is in your life. Repentance means that the sinner, conscious of his guilt and aware of the mercy of God in Christ, turns from his sin to God. The repentant sinner has a loathing and a hatred of sin and a great desire to live in obedience to God. He will cry to God for mercy and pardon. Repentance means more than being sorry for your sins. It's possible to be sorry for the trouble that distress has, that, that, and distress that sin has caused to you. Without giving the slightest thought, to what it has done to God. But the work of the Holy Spirit, by the work of the Holy Spirit, sin is seen for what it really is. Not just a character defect, but a permanent state of rebellion against the love and the care and the righteous authority of the Holy God. It's this new understanding of God and of one's own sin that leads to true repentance. There will be a great desire to break with the past and to live in the future only to please God. Not perfectly, of course, let me add, for there's no Christian perfect. But with God's help and by his grace and hopefully in an advancing way to live for God from day to day. That is true repentance. He's told to pray for forgiveness. That's what Peter urged Simon to do. Pray to the Lord, perhaps he'll forgive you. The prayer of forgiveness of for, uh, of sin is not a polite petition, friends. Let me remind myself and remind you. It's not a polite petition. It's really a cry of desperation to God. Lord, forgive me. Getting right with God becomes the most important thing in one's life. There's an urgency created in our hearts that by the Holy Spirit 
They will know no relief until salvation comes. It's the Lord alone who can forgive sin. And so it must be to him alone uh, that the repentant sinner draws near. Whether Simon did this or not, we are not told. But the New Testament does tell us that when we come to Christ in repentance and faith, he will receive us and forgive us all our sin. This is true salvation. It's not a fascination with miracles or anything else about the church, but a soul made right with God through the merit and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and on account of what he accomplished for us at Calvary. This, in reality, is God justifying us, bringing us into a right relationship with himself through the atoning sacrifice of his son. So let me say as we come towards a conclusion this morning, don't, my friend, fool yourself. And remember that you can certainly never fool God. And remember also that God is the one before whom one day you must stand and make answer. May the Lord enable all of us to search our hearts. May he enable us to seek God and be assured that we have come to know his saving grace in Christ. Let's pause for a moment to pray. Father, we thank you for the story of Simon the sorcerer. We thank you for all that through it you've been trying to teach us and point out to us today, Lord. We pray that you will enable each one of us here today, Lord, to search our own individual hearts, Lord, and know where we stand in these things. And we pray, Lord, in those words of the the hymn writer of old, search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me, O Lord, and know my thoughts, I pray. See if there be some wicked way in me. Cleanse me from every sin and set me free. Lord, take my life and make it wholly thine. Fill my poor heart with thy great love divine. Take all my will, my passion, self and pride. I now surrender. Lord, in me abide. And may... We do it and know the experience of God's saving grace and salvation. And all for the glory of Christ our Saviour we pray. Amen.